Hi everyone, it's good to be back and good to see you all. Um, my family son's greetings. They're uh, at church because we're trying to get the two-year-old settled in Sunday school and used to going there by herself. And so we decided a couple weeks of uninterrupted attendance would be the right thing to do this time. Uh, I love coming here and seeing you. And one of the ways I know that I've been here a lot is I was driving here this Sunday. I live in Harlem in Manhattan. And all of a sudden I realized somehow I'm on the Taconic. I don't remember getting there. I don't remember uh, particularly making the turn. But because the destination was so clear in my mind, and because I've driven this road fairly often enough, um, muscle memory took over. The part of my brain that seemed to still be working this morning um, got me to the right destination. Right? And I think we've all experienced that. When you know where you're going and you've done it often enough, you, your, your body and mind take over, which is very different from how most of us experience driving in an age of MapQuest or Google Maps where um, you don't even know really where you're going to end up or where it relates to anything. It's just a series of instructions, right? Um, turn left here, go three miles, make a right there, you know, do the hokey pokey, turn yourself around. Usually because I deviate wrongly and so I do a little hokey pokey in the car. But when, you're, when the destination is clear, when you know where you're going and you've been there often enough, um, you get pulled in that direction naturally. It's one of the reasons why athletes, when they're practicing, so I've been told, because <laughs> it's never happened. I, I don't do anything athletic. But I've been told they visualize in their head the perfect swing, uh, the perfect throw, the perfect whatever it is that athletes do, because I'm running out of vocabulary words. Uh, describe athletic actions, but it's what artists say that they do, right? Before they start, they have in their head a picture of what they're trying to accomplish. And as soon as that's clear, then every stroke, every note, um, every chip of the, uh, of the hammer and the chisel um, moves you to that goal. And part of what you've been experiencing, I trust, as you've been in Philippians together, is as Paul continues to hold out the example of Jesus Christ, as he continues to hold the amazing offer of grace um, and the beautiful gift of faith that he's given us, he's trying to paint a picture of come in this direction. And the clearer it becomes in our minds and our hearts and souls, what we'll find is naturally we'll begin to move in those directions that the very rhythms of grace that we begin to see and participate in begin to draw us with their own power uh, into participation with what God wants us to do. And that's what we're looking at today um, as we look at Philippians 3. Uh, 12 through 4, 1. So let me pray for us, and then we'll just dive in. I'm always humbled, Lord, as I reread the words of Paul, and I think about his confidence in your gospel, um, and his confidence in inviting people to follow his example, and how far short of that I fall. And so, Lord, I ask for your mercy, uh, and as was prayed this morning, Holy Spirit, um, would you use... Um, me, and then would you move among us so that we hear your voice, so that we respond in faith, and so that our confidence in you is renewed. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Uh, amen. Um, Paul, as you heard in the opening part of the scripture reading today, is totally caught up in the image of what it means to live by grace, in faith, with a desire for the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that was part of the passage that, uh, as a congregation, we looked at last week. And Look again, just to set up the context, uh, beginning Philippians 3, verse 7. But what was ever to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. 
right? His entire history, all the things that would have made him comfortable, confident in his religious ability, all of the things that would give him a sense of, I can make it before God. He goes, it's all worthless. I consider them rubbish, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Right? There's this grand vision. I would give everything. I'd release everything just to know Jesus. And the beautiful thing he says is, none of it is by what I've accomplished. It's all by what God has done. And then he's, and I think for all of us, as you have this great picture of what God has accomplished, the grace that he offers, how do you live into it? And that's what Paul wants to um, explain to us. If God has done everything, and there's nothing left for us to do, so what do we do? And he says, look, I've not, I've not obtained all of this. I haven't fully known Christ as I long to know. I don't know everything I'd like to do. I'm not all that I could be, nor have I already been made perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't, want, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Right? Paul's fixated on this promise of knowing Christ and experiencing his resurrection power, but he acknowledges he fully hasn't experienced yet. And so what he says is, I continue to press on, and it's another one of those athletic metaphors that I only sort of understand, but he's lunging forward, desperately trying to grab a hold of what Christ has offered him. And he can do it because he knows that Christ has already made him his own. Now, let's be really clear. By straining forward, by striving in this way, he isn't working to win Christ's grace. He's already received it. He's really clear about that, right? The second half of verse 12. Um, I press on to take a hold of that for which Christ has already taken a hold of me. But I think what he's doing is he's literally um, kind of filling out the existence of Christ's grace in his life by the choices that he's making. It's all encompassing. Christ has done everything, but in his mercy, Jesus is allowing us to participate uh, in fully expressing his grace. And as I was trying to think of how to describe what that's like, I had two illustrations both drawn from my own life. Um, my four-year-old, uh, Madeline, um, wakes up every night and cries. Uh, it's been a truth of our existence for two years. And because I travel a lot, when Madeline was two and my wife was pregnant with our youngest daughter, Kirsten, um, when I was traveling, my wife was like, I normally would force Mado to sleep in her own bed, which was our pattern ever since uh, infancy. But she said, when I was pregnant, I was just too tired to put up with it. So while you travel, I would just grab her at 2 o'clock in the morning and throw her in our bed, and then we would just both get a good night's sleep. Well, the 2 o'clock to 2.15 wake up has now been imprinted in my four-year-old's mind. So every night between 2 and 2.15, she wakes up, whimpers and cries. And because we're both just sleep-deprived, low-standards kind of people, um, <laughs> I go to her room. And rather than try to get her to go back to sleep, I just grab her, throw her in our bed, and we all sleep a really good night's sleep. What's interesting about Madeline is I, when I go to her room, I just basically hold my hands out. And she reaches up and grabs me. And um, what I love is she curls her arms around me and snuggles her face up in my neck. So honestly, that's honestly one of the reasons she gets to go to our room every night, is because I thoroughly enjoy the process of carrying her. 
she thinks she's holding on. She thinks she's contributing to the lift and to the grab of what's going on, but the reality is I'm doing all of the work. She could let go and she will not fall. But even though I'm doing all of the carrying, she's participating as far as she's able in the joined process of getting her to her goal, which is honestly not to sleep in my bed, but to sleep next to my wife. I'm the unimportant lump next to her. <laughs> um, she clings to me, but I do all the carrying. And that's a little bit what it's like with God's grace. He's doing all the carrying, but he invites us to cling to him, giving us the pleasure of participating in this process, even though we contribute nothing, but we're fully engaged in it. The, the other way I had of trying to describe it is a little bit like marriage. And those of you who are married know it very well, right? I was married on April 25th, 2003. The rings were exchanged. The vows were exchanged. Uh, the kiss was done. Um, it's complete. I'm a married person. But as all of us know, um, the process of being married is actually lived out in the day-to-day -day reality of the choices that I make. I am not more married now than I was that day. But the choices I make to love my wife, to submit to her and to her needs, to advance um, our relationship, in spite of all the other things that are going on, fills that marriage with content, fleshes it out in a real, lived, everyday way. It doesn't change my status, but I have the opportunity to participate in it. And I think that's a little bit of what Paul is saying. Jesus Christ already grabbed a hold of me. I'm, he's carrying me. I have nothing left to contribute. And I'm going to grab a hold of him while he's carrying me. I've already been united with him. I'm one with him. I have nothing to fear. And yet every day I'm going to try to fill out the definition and the richness of that relationship by what I do. Nothing that I do is going to change the status. Nothing I, I'm going to do is going to cause him to drop me. But how delightful, how wonderful that he allows me to participate and cling to him and snuggle. To flesh out the meaning of what it means uh, that he is the bridegroom that the church longs for. And so Paul says, look, I'm pressing on uh, to fully experience what Christ has already done for me. And what's interesting to me is he goes, because of the greatness of knowing who Jesus is, right? My desire to see that and to experience not only the joy and the pleasure of it, not, but also to participate in his suffering and to experience resurrection with him. I'm going to order my entire life around this. And he lives in light of this future promise that one day you will know me. You will be with me. And he goes, I'm going to live like it's true right now. And so flesh out that experience. And that's what he's saying a little bit in verses 13 to 14. Brothers, I don't consider myself um, yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize uh, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He defines his entire identity, right? I've forgotten everything in the past. The fact that I was um, a Pharisee among the Pharisees, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, the fact that I was righteous, all of that just doesn't matter to me now. The fact that I'm highly educated a Roman citizen isn't what's critical. What's critical is I can know Jesus. And so he focuses on the goal, right? He's straining to get ahead um, uh, so that he can embrace the grace that's been promised him in faith. And I think what happens for us, both when we come to faith, but as we choose to live it out, is that our entire identity gets reoriented around who Jesus is and what he's about and how we can participate with him. That all the other things which were easy to define who we were just aren't as important anymore. I, I think of a student, um, as, as many of you know, I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is a ministry in college and university campuses. And this past fall, we had um, 
a conference for about 500 college students in um, New York City, uh, all the way up to the kind of Vassar, and then uh, down into New Jersey. And one of the tracks was an evangelism track. And so we were recruiting students to participate uh, at this conference. And a Hindu, a, a student who grew up in a Hindu family, came to faith this fall at Hunter College, which was which was quite a significant thing. She had known the chapter there at Hunter College. She had been befriended by the students. The students had been faithfully witnessing to her. And over the course of the summer, then into the early fall, she began in a Bible study. And finally, when somebody said, are you willing to make a commitment to follow Jesus? She said, absolutely. But as you can imagine, coming from a dedicated Hindu family, her parents were appalled. So a couple weeks later, um, she was at the fellowships uh, meeting. And she just started crying when they were talking about this conference. She said, I would love to go. My parents are so opposed to anything about Christianity. It will never happen. So I can't go. And the student leaders were wise. They said, let's pray. And so they gathered around her and they prayed, Lord, would you make a way for the student to go? Would you open doors so that she can actually go and develop more deeply as a disciple of Jesus? And she said, thank them for the prayers, went home. Then as she opened the door of their home, her mother met her and said, you'd mentioned that conference uh, that's coming up a couple weeks. I think you should go. So she said, I said, thank you. She said, I ran up the stairs, registered right away before my mom had a chance to change her mind. <laughs> And she sent this email to the chapter. She said, thank you for praying. The power of prayer is real. My mom changed her mind, and I signed up for the evangelism track because this is what God really made me for. I'm, I was created to share the good news of Jesus Christ, both with my family and the people around me. Thank you for praying. I'm going to be there in two weeks. Right? And for this woman, her entire identity is now shifting. Right? Everything that defined her in the past about her religious identity, her cultural identity, her relationship with her parents is getting reorganized around the idea, the reason I exist is to declare who Jesus Christ is. And the community of Christ has come alongside her and helped her redefine herself in that way. Paul is saying the same thing. All that used to define me is, it no, lo is no longer the primary thing by which I define who I am. The primary thing that defines who I am is what Jesus Christ is doing in me. And so Paul lives in light of this promise to know Christ, which he hasn't fully experienced yet, but he's pressing toward it. And then he invites the Philippians, and I think by extension he's inviting us, to live in light of the promise of knowing Christ fully by following Paul's own model. Look again at um, verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if at some point you think differently, that too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I've often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Paul makes these really interesting um, invitations to the Philippians. First, he says, look, I told you now what it means to live by faith through Jesus Christ's grace and how I long for it. So let's agree that this is the goal of the Christian life, right? Let's be of the same mind about this. This is what it's about. Um, your example is that of Jesus Christ, right, who, consider, who had equality with God, didn't consider. Live in humility because of the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ. Embrace 
and press into grace because of the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ. Let's agree on this. And he goes, look, if some of you disagree, God will work it out with you. That's how confident I am that I know where we're going. So it says, not only be of the same mind with me, but imitate me and imitate those who you see imitating me. Because there have been other teachers wandering around. He's saying, some of the teachers are not imitating me as I imitate Jesus, so don't follow them. But if you see people who are faithfully imitating me as I imitate Jesus, then imitate those people as well. Now, this is a pretty nervy thing to say, right? I don't know that many of us would necessarily say, do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to be pleasing to God? Watch me. Watch me at every minute of every day. Watch me all the time, right? We'd be horrified most of the time. Please let nobody see this. <laughs> right? I'm horrified by my own sin. But there's something true and right about it, right? This is why we gather and scatter churches here at this church. This is why we participate in missional communities together. This is why we gather for Sunday and have discussion groups afterwards. This is why we have our kids in Sunday school, because it's critical for our spiritual formation that we don't assume that we do it by ourselves just in a morning quiet time, isolated from each other, as important as that is. Or in times of solitude and silence, as critical as those are, part of the way that we grow deeper and experience what it means to live by grace is we watch one another as we pursue Jesus Christ together. And as I think about my own discipleship, as I think about the, old, the ways that I've grown in faith, more often than not, the great experiences have been as I've caught faithful Christians doing the faithful Christian thing. And I think, that's what it looks like. That's what it means. I open the Bible and expect God to speak, not because theologically I'm committed to the authority of Scripture, though that's true, but because at the church I grew up in, um, there was this entire row and section of 60- and 70-year-old Chinese uh, women and men, kind of the senior citizens of the church. And every week you could look over in their eyes and they would open the scripture and the look of anticipation and excitement that was in their face when they thought the speaker was about to speak convicted me every week. But as a younger person, I was like, ah, oh, it's going to be one of those sermons again, I can tell. They were so convinced God was going to speak to them and feed them and nourish them. And I thought, I want to be like that when I'm 70, when I'm 80. Every time I open the scripture, anticipating God is going to say something to me. And so because I had their example, I began to change my behavior, right? I went to China on an InterVarsity Global project, and I watched um, the senior staff director, Fred Wagner, take conversation after conversation about the, the weirdest, most mundane things and just casually bring Jesus into it in a very appropriate way. And I thought... I want to be skilled at conversation and listening, so I pay such a deep attention to what people are saying. And I'm paying attention to what Jesus is saying in the moment, that I can bring those two together in a natural, casual way. And I, was, I learned to listen to Jesus a little bit more in the midst of a conversation. I remember being with a friend of mine. Um, we were meeting, and she excused herself to go to the restroom. This is at um, a dining hall at the university. And when she came back, she said, I'm sorry, I'm, it took me a little bit. She said, but um, it was so messy in that bathroom, and I was just about to leave, and I remembered a sermon that my pastor just preached uh, the Sunday before on what does it mean to be a servant, and she said, I decided to just clean up a little bit. She wasn't doing it to teach me anything, but her responsiveness to what she heard, being obedient, and then being a servant to clean a public restroom at a university, just wiping the counters off, throwing the, um, the um, paper towels away, spoke volumes 
about how I was to respond to the word of God and what it meant for me to be salt and light in the places I was at. Part of what's Paul saying, right, as a community, we need to be in community together because as we watch each other pray, as we watch people take steps of faith, as we watch people walk through struggles and acknowledge this is hard and I hate it, but I will look to God. It helps all of us press into faith. So Paul says, follow my example as I follow Jesus. And that's part of the invitation that we make constantly every week together. Let's follow each other's example as we collectively begin to continue to follow Jesus. And Paul says, look, if you do this, you're in great shape. And if you don't do this, you're going to be in terrible trouble. Because there are two potential consequences for the choice of pressing into grace because of the great thing that God is offering. As he says, if you don't imitate me, you're going to imitate those who are enemies of the cross and who face destruction. And that's what he's saying in verses 18 and 19. Right? For as often as... I, for as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, because he's grieved at this. He's not judgmental, he's grieved. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. If you don't imitate me as I look to Jesus, you're going to imitate those people who look to everything but Jesus. Your vision will be consumed by the things that consume the minds of everybody else. And he describes them in a couple different ways, right? He, he says, these are people who just worship their own cravings. And if you, if you think about our culture, it's, it's, it's almost absurd the level at which we worship our own cravings, isn't it? Um, I was just thinking about, uh, there's this entire new um, TV genre as well as um, picture genre that we just now call food porn where people like send each other pictures of the food that they're currently eating, but it's so beautiful and so tasteful, right? we put it up on Facebook. There's entire TV channels now just devoted to watching people eat and describing what they eat to us and making us long for it. Now, I'm a foodie. I love those kind of things at an intellectual level, but I also realize it appeals to just what you want is all-consuming, all delightful for you, right? I love the fact that Amazon gives me one-click buying because it makes it even faster now. I can get things I want right away. And my entire culture, right, uh, we ordered something off of Target.com, and it's like, it took a week to get here, and I was so fresh. I'm like, ah, oh, if I had done this through Amazon, I could have gotten second-day shipping free because I'm a Prime member, right? The entire culture we live in is designed to help us um, achieve and get exactly what we want as fast as we want. And Paul goes, um, what are you worshiping? Do you want to worship that? Do you want to be consumed by what you own, what you taste, and what you feel? Or do you want your mind, heart, and soul to be consumed by a picture of God who loves us so deeply that he dies in our place and on our behalf and then shows his resurrection power and he says, I will give that to you too. For those of us who will watch the Super Bowl next week, which won't be me because I don't like sports, um, <laughs> Pay attention to the ads and ask yourself, what do we as a country worship? Watch the Super Bowl and ask yourself, what do we as a country worship? What do we gather in our largest temples to do on a Sunday? Paul says, look, um, they delight in what brings them shame. And really, if you pay any attention to popular culture at all, right, isn't it amazing that the things before that you thought were somewhat transgressive, somewhat kind of... Um, envelope pushing, border crossing, are now things that everybody does as just a way of proving their credentials. So the goal is to be a little crasser than the last person, a little bit more revealing, a little bit more shocking, because we glory in our shame, rather than delighting in the things that are good. 
I think what's happening with this group of people is one of two possible mistakes around what it means to live by grace. Either they have such cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, that they're so convinced God will forgive everything, they don't care what they do anymore. And they think Jesus Christ died just so that we can indulge our whims. Everything's going to be forgiven, so why worry about it? Or they have such a limited understanding of grace that they engage in that kind of legalism which finds satisfaction in their own self-manufactured righteousness. And so when it becomes how good I can be rather than what Christ has accomplished, you give yourself permission to do all sorts of things. I was really faithful to Bible study. I think I can cheat on this one a little bit. Um, there's an interesting study that said um, people who buy organic foods tend to be ruder at the uh, Whole Foods parking lot than people who don't. <laughs> and the, the social scientists, as they explored why would organic food people be ruder, is that they, they think what was going on is people felt more virtuous as they were buying this healthy, right, non-modified, non-pesticide, healthy for the environment food, and it gave them a little bit more space in their life to go, well, I'm really a virtuous person, so when I was rude in the parking lot, it doesn't really change who I am, right? And I think that's what happens a little bit when we live in a world that's our righteousness defines who we are. We give ourselves a little bit more slack to be rude later because we know we're righteous deep inside. And grace cuts across all of that and says, no, no, no. The greatness of the grace of God actually compels us to participate with what he's doing, to cling to him as he holds us up. Because that's all we have. And so Paul says, look, if you imitate me, you'll embrace being citizens of heaven and experience the transformation that God promises. And he uses this language of citizenship as he's writing to Philippi, which right, is a Roman colony in a very Greek city. And the point of colonization, as negative as that is in our current culture, the point of colonization is not that you go, oh, if we could only be in Rome. Man, I hate Philippi. I just want to be in Rome. Let's all go back to Rome. Let's have, let's, can we all, let's all move back to Rome, right? That's not what colonists do. Colonists leave Rome to go to the new city to bring Roman law, Roman culture, Roman music, and Roman attitudes to an otherwise Greek place. And so when Paul says, your citizenship in is in heaven, he's not going, so everybody, let's reverse immigrate and go home. That's not what colonists do. He's saying, the reason you are here is that you are citizens of heaven. So bring heaven here. Bring heaven's culture here. Bring heaven's values here. Bring heaven's glory here. You're not supposed to go back home. You've been sent here so that people can see and experience heaven where they live. And he points out, look, Jesus Christ is coming from heaven to come here. Do you want to be with Jesus? Go to the place that Jesus is going. Stay here. Be focused here, embody heaven here, be a colony here so that the world can taste and see that Jesus Christ is good because you're here. Jesus is coming from your home, your old home heaven, to complete the act of renewal and one day he will give you resurrection bodies even as he makes a new heaven and earth. And we are going to be here delighting, working, and serving him together. Now, and then so he invites us, I think, to demonstrate Christ's righteousness and renewal wherever we're at right now. Right? That's why we do missional communities at this church. It's designed to say, what are the things that we already love doing? How do we incorporate those who don't know Jesus into the community of Christians doing things that we mutually love so that as they begin to interact with us, they actually see this is what heaven is going to be like. This is where forgiveness is offered, where love is extended, right? Where grace is extended, um, where truth is spoken, 
where brokenness is healed, that's, they're going to encounter that in that community. That's why we do what we do. When we invite children to VBS here in the summer, six months from now, when I don't know if Julian will be organizing again, but you know, part of what it is, we want kids from the community to experience a grace-filled, loving place because it may be the only place this year that they will encounter people who love them unconditionally, who have no expectations about their grades or their performance or what they do, but they just encounter people who go, because you exist, I choose to love you, right? We're creating little colonies of heaven in this community. Now, lest we feel burdened by the task of creating colonies of heaven everywhere, oh my gosh, how am I going to be the example of heaven in my workplace? I can't do it. How, you know, what are we going to do here in northern Westchester? We have to remember that our actions are neither necessary nor sufficient to complete the work of transformation. It's all grace. God will do it all. But he invites us to fill up the content of what he's already doing by the choices that we make. He'll carry it. He'll carry our workplaces, our neighborhoods, and our country. But he's inviting us to cling and hang on so that even though it's not necessary, we get to participate. That's what it means to jump in and experience grace together. And then at the end of this, right, Paul says, look at what the glorious experience of grace that God's offering is. Press into it. Imitate me and don't imitate those people. And he gives us two um, really concrete invitations to make. And I misread the assignment, so I went a little further ahead. But the first thing that he says is stand firm in confidence that Christ will complete this. Right? Stand firm. You have nothing to worry about in your spiritual life. It's great that your elders are working on an assessment, but we don't approach that with panic or dread. What we approach it on is that's the mile marker on this marathon we're on. And we know even if we stumble, Christ will pick us up. Even if we falter, he will come beside us and pull us on. And even if we just fall flat on our face and cannot move a muscle, Christ will just pick us up and carry us to the finish line. We have nothing to be afraid of. And so we have great confidence in going, do I want to grow? Absolutely, because I know no matter how bad I am at it, no matter how often I fail at it, Jesus Christ will get me over the finish line. And then he says, the next verse is really, um, I plead with Yodia and Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. And I think this is part of the invitation that he's making to live by grace, because what he's also saying is don't just stand firm, but live as a reconciled community together. Because you're living out the reconciliation that will occur at the end of time, because at the end of that passage he goes, look, um, Yodia and Syntyche, somebody remind them both of their names are in the book of life. You're going to spend an eternity together. Work it out now. Shall we? Jesus Christ already forgave all of your sins. Are you really going to hold your petty annoyances with each other against each other when Jesus Christ doesn't hold your sin against you? You're part of the redeemed community of Jesus. Where you are, people should experience the power of the resurrection. Are you manifesting that now? And when we experience, I think, reconciliation, when we pursue forgiveness, people experience what it means to live by grace. I know I've told this story before, and I'll just end with it. Um, but when I was in China one year, um, we pair American students with Chinese students. And our goal is uh, we honor the laws of the country so we don't raise religious issues. But what we told our students is if I bring 30 American Christians to this place and you, pe people don't ask you about your faith, something is terribly wrong because you fit in too easily. Right? So the American students are doing their best to be Jesus-like. Um, 
in China, they're like, we'll, we'll be servants. And the problem is if you travel to Asia, these cultures have spent 5,000 years working on serving people. They, the American students never got a chance, right? They were being served left and right because they couldn't speak. They didn't know the culture. And so people are having to help them. And they're so frustrated. How do we live like Jesus here? And they're like, we're like, don't initiate a conversation about faith. That's illegal. You will get your friends in trouble, right? Let's, let's honor, but live distinctly. Ah, what do we do? So one day I was talking with the Chinese counterparts. And I said, so we're in week three. What have you noticed so far about the Americans? Now, week three is a terrible time to ask that question because for one week, you can live anywhere in the world and put up with it. By week two, it's beginning to get on your nerves. By week three, you're like, this is no longer fun. I hate this. I can't wait to go home. So the American students are cranky. They're complaining. They're really whiny. But you know, I'm trapped with this Chinese student. So I said, oh, you know, how, what do you notice? She goes, the American students, they fight a lot. And I'm like, no, no, that's not what you're supposed to see. How about love? How about service? Yeah, she said, they, they always fight. I'm like, oh. And I was about to say, you know, yeah, you know, cross-cultural stress, it's been three weeks, they're eating rice every day, they just can't handle it. <laughs> and she goes, but you know what's really fascinating is um, they keep trying to reconcile. Why do they do that? She said, you know, here in China, if I don't get along with you, I just walk away. There are a billion other people to talk to. I don't need you. <laughs> Why do the American students always seek to talk and reconcile? Can you explain that? Right? It was like the world's slowest soft pitch softball headed to me. Why do these Christian students extend and give forgiveness? Let me tell you about Jesus, right? What was the opening to the gospel for this student? It wasn't the righteousness of our students. Wow, they have much more integrity than everyone else. It wasn't they were nicer or more loving than everyone else. It wasn't that they outserved everybody else. It was they deeply pressed into the reality of grace. God forgave me, so I will give grace to you. And there, at that moment, in their weakness, confident about the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, they opened up a doorway to heaven and became a colony of heaven in that place. They demonstrated their true citizenship wasn't being American students. They were Jesus Christ students from America in that place. And they opened up a colony of heaven. And it was as they pressed into grace, because they knew the end, I'm going to have to forgive. I'm going to have to extend and receive grace as we fought with each other, that all of a sudden the reality of what they were doing became real to the people around them. Brothers and sisters, um, I often ask the question, how did I get here when I'm driving places? Because I, I'm a little distracted. I'm listening to the radio. I'm thinking about other things. I'd like to think I was thinking about the sermon as I was driving. And that's how I found myself on the Taconic. Um, unaware. But the reality is, right, because I knew where I was going, because I had a clear image of where this church is in relationships to the road I had to take, it was a lot easier to get there. And eventually, over time, part of what the process of spiritual formation is going to look like for us as a community is when you make Jesus Christ really clear in your mind, when knowing him is the primary goal, when it absorbs your um, imagination, your thoughts, your passions, and your desires, you're going to find yourself moved into that automatically begin to participate in things that he do, does. And you're experience the freedom and joy that that gives you because he's carrying you and he invites you to hang on for the ride. Let me pray for us. Um, Lord Jesus, um, I, I always feel like these are one of the, this sermon particularly, I preach what I barely even know. Um, help me... Um, to relax into your grace, knowing that you are both, you do everything that's necessary and you are more than sufficient. 
And then give me the will to cling to you as I participate in what you're doing. And thank you for the privilege, Lord, of knowing that even if I let go, even if I try to squirm away, you will not let me fall. And to you be the honor and glory, Lord, forever. Amen.